Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode contains some strong language. Hello, I'm Mariella Frostrup, and this is Books to Live By, the podcast where I ask my guests to pick a handful of titles from a lifetime of reading to help us learn more about the books that make them tick. With me in this episode is the comedian, writer and actor Joe Brand, who started out in alternative comedy in the 1980s after working as a psychiatric nurse. Now, long established as, well, part of the comedy establishment, Joe is also a writer of both fiction and non-fiction and a book lover. To name a couple of examples of her books, the novel The More You Ignore Me was adapted for a film starring Sheridan Smith and in Born Lippy, How to Do Female, Jo gathers together some of what she wishes she'd known, a thing she's learned and her hopes for the future. Um, jo, welcome to Books to Live By. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the programme because I know that you're a big book lover. I am. Um, I wonder... You are, you are. Um, I wonder how much they've they've sort of formed your education because looking at the list I have here, which we'll go into in a moment, it does look like books for you have been a sort of form of radicalisation. Is that fair to say? Well, I think in, to some extent it's fair to say. I mean, I took the the title Books to Live By quite seriously, I suppose. And so I was thinking if I could just have five books... And I had to, to kind of use those to guide me in a way. And in what way would I want them to? I wouldn't say this is a definitive list, but it's not it's kind of not far off it. And and have books um, been something that you've used to guide you in your life? I mean, I know, look, I, I left school at, at 16, um, you know, having just done the sort of Irish equivalent of GCSE. So books are, are literally my education. That, that's how I've learned anything that I have learned uh, uh, along the way, you know, and that's not necessarily, um, you know, it's probably a one dimensional in some ways way of, of, of kind of educating yourself. But but that's that's been mine. I wondered if they've been significant in that way for you too. Oh, I think absolutely crucial in many ways. You know, I mean, my my my, um, my parents, I suppose you'd say they, they started off as kind of quite working class and they kind of clawed their way up a bit. And uh, I mean, they were both very bright people and they both kind of read loads of different types of stuff. And rather entertainingly, both my mum and dad have sort of self-published books. Oh, really? Yeah, my dad wrote this brilliant book called Life Goes By, <laughs> which I thought was such a sweet title. And it's basically um, about his life and our life. And my mum was hugely embarrassed by it. It's quite personal, <laughs> but she couldn't stop him. So he just did it anyway. And uh, my mum also um, wrote one of those kind of Victorian sort of books where you pick out um, quotes and poetry. I can't even remember what they're called at now I'm sure I'll think of it uh, so she picked out her favorite sort of quotes and poems and stuff like that and had them all published in a book and gave us all a copy so it's lovely 
That's quite an unusual thing for both your parents to have self-published. Um, were they quite competitive with each other, or you know, no? How did that come about? Well, they they split up when I was fifteen, but they kind of remained in touch with each other in some sorts of ways, and kind of throughout the rest of their lives. But they weren't suited to each other at all. They were totally different. My dad was um, an engineer, and and my mum was a social worker, so. They didn't have many points of, of of meeting, shall we say, in terms of their views. They're both very left-wing, though. But, uh, no, they weren't competitive with each other. My dad would not know how to be competitive with my mum. She was miles ahead of him. <laughs> Gosh, that's harsh. <laughs> and when they split up when you were 15, do you remember what you were reading at that point or was reading something you came to later? Certainly the titles on this list are definitely not, I would say, your teenage reading. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, The Female Eunuch by Jermaine Greer was pretty much around my teenage years. And I do remember sort of, you know, picking that up fairly early on because I was very intrigued by the cover. But we'll talk about that in a bit, if you like. Um, I think my teenage reading, well, obviously a lot of it centred around books that we had to read for school sort of O-levels, as they were called then, and A-levels. So I spent a lot of my time, obviously, reading a bit of Dickens, a bit of Hardy, that kind of thing. But I wasn't one of those people that suffered and went, oh, God, do we have to read this crap? You know, can't I read Jackie? I kind of wasn't like that, really. I like reading anything, to be honest, except books about scaffolding. And sadly, my dad actually did write a book about scaffolding, and I never got through that. <laughs> did he self-publish that as well? No, that's actually... It's still on... Amazon if you're interested if you can't get to sleep one night uh, no it wasn't self-published they actually did commission <laughs> that apparently it was the definitive book on it's oh, can I remember what it was called it's called false work and access in tubular steel not what you'd pick up in Waterstones <laughs> is it really but um no I, I'm quite shocked that hasn't featured on your list I think you're not being a good daughter here <laughs> Well, you know, I don't really need his speciality was why things fall down, particularly bridges. And um, I don't really need to do that in my job. Maybe I've neglected a very important area of my life. I don't know. So tell me just before we move on to, to, to your list, just a little bit more about sort of young, young Joe, teenage Joe. You say that you would read anything. Were you a kind of bit of a loner? Did you love being alone with books or...? Uh, no, I wasn't a loner at all. I mean, I was, I was, I've always been kind of very sociable and I always had a group of friends that wanted to go out sort of very young, much to my parents' horror Say. in many ways, because I, we were living in Hastings and Hastings was a kind of den of iniquity, the type that teenagers absolutely love to be, you know, immersed in. So, uh, no, I wasn't really a loner, to be honest, who read books, but I just naturally read because I liked it, you know. And interestingly, both of my brothers didn't really read at all and never really got into it. And I suppose my mum was a, a much sort of greater reader than my dad and that probably is why it was me that ended up being the reader. 
But you didn't go down a, a I mean, you, you sort of initially went down a more vocational path, didn't you? Then, a, oh, I think I'm going to indulge myself in the arts and comedy and culture route. So what was influencing you? I, I presume partly your mum, I suppose, being being a social worker. Well, what happened? Like the story of my life and where how I got to this point, I feel is all about my parents moving me from a school that I really loved to a town, which was Hastings, until I discovered what delights it hit. We, they, they, moved, they moved there and they said that I couldn't stay on at the school I was at, which was in Tunbridge Wells of all places. And at Tunbridge Wells, I was the kind of model school girl. I was kind of, you know, on that trajectory um, because I was, I'd done very well in my O-levels of sort of doing the Oxbridge thing. I wanted to do English literature. And then I was moved to a school in Hastings and I just very quickly spent my time down the seafront in Hastings with a load of unsavoury characters in the local cafe, smoking my head off and running away if we saw a teacher come past. So I'm afraid I turned into that. But that's so interesting. Do you ever wonder what Joe Brand would have been like if you'd gone down that other path? Because it's a completely different route, isn't it, in life? Yeah, I do wonder. I don't I don't think I would have liked myself very much if I had. I think I probably was cuz I mean, you know, I'm 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 saying I did well in my O levels. I'm not I haven't got I don't think I've got a brilliant brain to be honest. I, I think I was a hard worker and I think I would have found, you know, the the brightest brains in the country quite a challenge and I probably A would either have been resentful or I would have rebelled at some aspect of of Oxford, which is where my school wanted me to go. So I might have ended up where I am anyway, but um, I certainly think I'm here because of that happening. So it was a good thing in many ways. But you say you don't have a big brain, but I would argue that comedy takes a big brain. You know, the idea that comedy is is for sort of numbskulls who can tell a joke is, is a complete misnomer, isn't it? Well, to some extent it is. I think to do comedy, you need a quite a broad knowledge of what is going on in your society. Um, so to me, that includes very much politics and that kind of thing. Um, you need to be fairly quick as well. But, you know, an awful lot of it is smoke and mirrors. People don't realise, you know, I mean, I would do heckle put downs in the past and people would go, oh, you know, that's brilliant. And I go, it's not really brilliant because I worked that heckle put down out two years ago and I've been doing it ever since. You just haven't heard it before. Do you know what I mean? It's comedy is very much like that. And a lot of people used to genuinely think that when you did a 20 minute set, it was different every night. Well, I challenge everyone, even Eddie Izzard, to do different material every night and make it funny. It's, it's absolutely impossible. So the material you do is honed and practised and repeated endlessly, really, um, until you've got something you know works and you just reject the rest of it. So in that way, it is very much a front, really. But it, that also means that you have to learn to write, doesn't it? Is that something that you think you developed as a as a as a skill set, you know, as a result of embarking on comedy? Yeah, to some extent to get probably, but I'm quite lazy, you know, and I used to because I was <laughs> you stop it. I am self-deprecating person. <laughs> when I when I when I first started doing comedy, I would laboriously write everything out word for word and learn it, you know 
but that is so boring and it just takes so much time. And it was only when I kind of got a bit more relaxed and was able to not panic about how the structure of the joke would go that I could that I could be sort of more like myself. Because when I first started and I was called the sea monster, um, I had a very, very weird um, kind of way of delivering jokes, which came out of the fact that I was so nervous. And I remember a review once said that I, I should read the football results because I did used to go da 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 like that, you know. And it was only through comparing gigs and having to deal with audiences sort of heckling or, or, or you know, trying to change the mood of a gig if it was getting out of control or trying to ramp things up if it was getting a bit dull that I learnt properly how to do comedy, I suppose. So that's about confidence, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's also very much about acting as well. Because I always say to women particularly, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but this is quite mild swearing. But I used to say, if you look like you don't give a shit, people will think you don't give a shit. And it's absolutely true. So I would get the most horrible things said to me by members of the audience. And I would just look at them like I couldn't care less or like I'd found it amusing in some way, um, you know, and that really makes a difference. As soon as you falter and you reveal a tiny little chink of anxiety or, or worry about what's going to happen, that the audiences aren't nice. They kill you. You know, they don't have sympathy and think, oh, we'll just let them have a few more chances with their rubbish jokes. They dispense with you. So you have to learn tactics to deal with them, really. That's why people think I'm gobby and horrible, because I act a lot of it all the time, you know. Actually, I'm quite good. No, I'm not horrible, but I am quite gobby. <laughs> <laughs> why did you want to put yourself in that position, though? Because, you know, as you say, you, you faced an absolute avalanche of abuse in the early days of your comedy career. And, and you weren't, I mean, you, I think you're saying that you weren't feeling that confident. Um, so what was it that was that was propelling you? Well, first of all, the abuse was totally kind of expected. You know, like audiences that heckle you and journalists in the tabloids that slag you off, they're not exactly imaginative, you know. I mean, I knew it was going to be fat, you know, number one, two, unattractive, three, I don't know, men don't fancy her or whatever it was or she looks like a lesbian because that used to be abuse in my day people used to think that was <laughs> hilarious to say that although I know you know lesbians who are the most beautiful people I've ever met so it's absolutely ridiculous it was all that kind of cliched stuff so I knew what I was going to get and I, quite honestly I didn't really care that much because I think if you look like I do and if you're the weight that I am you've already had experience of that on the streets and the joy of being a stand-up was that you can match them insult for insult and if your insults are a bit cleverer than theirs and they make the audience laugh you've won you know so I liked that aspect of it really. And going back to the, the book thing, uh, you know, there you are sort of appearing like an extrovert, you know, doing your stage shows and things. Were books a place to sort of retreat to in any way or have they just always been a kind of displacement activity for you? Well, I think they are somewhere to retreat to. It's like kind of having your own private little alternative world. And, 
you know, one thing I that really pisses me off is when I start a book and I don't like it. You know, I used to keep persevering, but life's too short, really. And these days, if I'm not immediately taken in the first, say, 10, 20 pages, then then I won't bother anymore because the book's really got to suit me, to captivate me, if you like, so I can escape back into them because there's so much competing media these days for your attention. And I watch, believe you me, a lot of crap on telly if I get the chance. Like my daughters made me start watching Made in Chelsea and now they don't watch it anymore, so I watch it on my own. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of thing. So I I will kind of spread myself across everything and I will watch anything except perhaps the budget, which I don't find very interesting. But I'm constantly being pulled away by different things to do. So it has to be a really brilliant book. Interesting, though, because it seems you're prepared to slum it in other uh, areas of the arts uh, and, and, and <laughs> I'm culture. I'm prepared to slum it anywhere, Mariella, if I'm but, honest. But, <laughs> but not in books. No, well, there you are. I suppose that's that's a measure of how important they are to me. I mean, in a way, it's like poetry. You know, a, a good book is really unsurpassable. I would far rather read a brilliant book than watch a brilliant film or, or a, a series on TV. Not that I don't like those sorts of things. I do, but I think a book is the thing that really... A good novel is just, you know, head and shoulders above any other way of spending your time. You say that a good novel is better than a good film. And I know that the novel that you have on on, on this list here, actually, interestingly, is set in that den of iniquity that is Hastings, but actually disguised, isn't it, as Mugsborough in The Ragged Trousered Philanthropist by Robert Tressel. That's right, yes. I mean, I, I see that as a half a novel and kind of half a sort of didactic manifesto for socialism, really, in some ways. So it's kind of not like a novel to me. It's Well, it's almost like reading history, although, yes, it is a novel, obviously, because it's made up. And, yes, it is set in Hastings, but not called it. So tell me, tell me about the novel aspect of it first, and then we'll go on to the didactic manifesto uh, for socialism. Okie dokie. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say to people that look at it and go, oh, my God, I'm never reading that. It's about a load of blokes building, um, decorate, building and decorating the inside of a house. What on earth could possibly be attractive about that? Hmm, thinks back to my father with his holding bridges up. But what I would say to you is if you can't read a whole book like that, and it's not an easy book to read in many ways. It's a bit like some Dickens. It's very sort of discursive and it wanders off and you think, oh, just get to the point, will you, sometimes. I like all that, but a lot of people won't. There is actually a graphic novel version of it, which is absolutely brilliant. And I really almost like it as much as the original. So if people want to look at that, it's a much quicker read, but it just gets the point across, if you like. And it's beautifully illustrated as well. So how did it manage to pass the the Joe Brand test then? Because as you said, you know, you're an impatient reader and this is a novel that, you know, takes lots of digressions and isn't perhaps instantly appealing. No, I know. So it's difficult to explain why it instantly appealed to me, but it did. You know, I kind of... 
or uh, with books that I really love, I get captured by the first page. And I suppose it was the Hastings thing that led me to it. But as soon as I started reading it, I was just very interested in this um, this kind of group of men who were all very different. It's it's kind of supposed to be the, fo- the first sort of socialist, proper like working class novel ever. And I always used to be a bit disappointed in Jane Austen, to be honest, because there were only posh people in it. And, you know, I I don't think you, for a long time, especially with women writers, you don't get much of a sense of people's lives in those days. So for me, it was like a historical document, a manifesto, and a really fascinating account of how one bloke who's incredibly bright tries to talk round this group of sort of self-confessed, idiots really in a way who don't feel they warrant any respect or any bettering of their lives and just sort of accept their lot accept that the people in government are much more intelligent than they are so therefore they must know best etc etc and it's also a kind of historical document of the time you know there's no social services there's no health service people starved people died Mm. yeah what does that remind me of starved and uh, got cold anyway uh, these days It was just interesting to see how these men, who were obviously men that the author, Robert Tressel, had worked with, because he, in fact, used to do the job that he's writing about. So that kind of makes it very real. How he tries to talk these guys round, who who he assumes, I think, had 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 a Marxist false consciousness about the position they were in. They didn't really realise that there was a better life if they banded together politically and did something about it, you know. So from all points of view, fascinating. Plus, um, although that's what it's ostensibly about, there's a lot of stuff in it about how charities had to kind of pick up the tab for really serious poverty and background stories about families who are really struggling and how they lived. And I just found all that fascinating. You said that that it's a a political novel, you know, and that in some ways it's a sort of socialist manifesto. When did you first read it? And having said that you took it very seriously, the the books to live by uh, element of this, did it profoundly affect your thinking or did it just confirm what you were already thinking? It confirmed what I was already thinking, I suppose. Yeah, no, it did. And um, I suppose I read it when I was, I don't know, 17 or 18. Um, and I mean, the the original reason was that someone in Hastings, where I was from, um, told me about it. And I did kind of think, oh, builders, I'm not sure I'm going to like that. Because builders these days, well, then actually it's sort of slightly changed. Now they're not allowed to whistle and go, cheer up, love. It may ever, never happen, you know, and you have to go, oh, please. That is such a cliche, mate. Just forget it, will you? And read Yeah, but I miss it. Oh, shut up. Do you? I do. Oh, yeah, because I think that was the really benign face of, of, of you know, male-female interaction. Like the, the whistle and the, you know, smile, love. I sort of think, yeah, that, that I, th- I think I, I sort of feel like I'm harking back to the good old days when I remember that happening. And and now it everything just feels so much more sort of toxic and serious and awful and, 
you know, laced with violent <laughs> sexual behaviour. And, you know, it just feels like the, the, the bar has been raised very high. Yeah, I, I, do, I do know what you mean. But I, I think kind of whichever way you tackle it from is, is kind of one way to have a go at it, you know. It's shifted, hasn't it? Because I think builders are now very aware that they're not really supposed to do that anymore. So they've kind of stopped doing that in a way. And the thing is, all the other stuff you're talking about, that was all going on 20 years ago anyway. And the problem with it was, was that, that women were either just putting up with it and and tabloid newspapers thought it didn't make very good stories or something because that was never kind of discussed really and some women said oh you know it's, it's just a laugh when like Jimmy Savile pinched my bum or whatever it was and and we all we all know where that story went do you know what I mean so I think it's quite a hard thing to unpick really I mean, my, my thing is I've always had a huge rage about men. I can't help myself. I try not to, but I am just, I do rage about them generally and I, I can't help it. Why? Why? Why do you rage? Because, I mean, obviously you're married to a man and, and you're happily married yeah, to a I man. Can't you have a father who. You... <laughs> <laughs> but you're still there. <laughs> and I, I was just wondering, like on the builders thing, I was thinking maybe the fact is, Joe, that they don't whistle and shout at us anymore because we've reached that age where they don't even see us walking past. Well, the thing is with me, Mariella, they never did. They never whistled at me because I'm not... I, honestly, you're looking sad for me. I, I, so I've <laughs> no, thought about this a lot. Thinking... Would I really rather be kind of gorgeous like you are and, and have that aspect, that facet of the male gaze? Or would I rather be like me? And I'd rather be like me, to be honest. I have friends who are absolutely uh, beautiful and I don't envy their lives one little bit, you know. And I've also had a couple of friends that have gone quite mad because of it, particularly um, one woman that I, that, I, that I can think of who was unbelievable. And men virtually used to faint when she came in a room. She was so gorgeous. And as she started to get older, she got really, really depressed because what validated her was disappearing in front of her eyes in the mirror, you know. And I think it's far more fun thinking up put-downs <laughs> for when men say rude things than it is kind of going, oh, thank you. you know, not that you went around simpering and going, oh, thanks very much or whatever, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I simpering's it's, it's... probably not in my vocabulary. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm sure you've never simpered in your life. But, you know, I think women are supposed to react to a certain way to those compliments, aren't they? I mean, you're, you know, you're, but, I'm not saying women think... go thank you or, or, oh, you know, that's validated my day, but... I want to be in the other camp. That's what I'm saying. Because I think I think men are kind of quite hideous when they're when they're perving women up. To be honest, I find it kind of rather unpalatable, <laughs> quite honestly. But but if someone said something as expansive as that uh, about the entirety of of women, you'd probably be quite outraged. Like, do you think it's fair, the take that you have on men? Listen, I, I have met many men that I would not be jumping up and down and kind of shouting compliments at. Uh, but, but, but this idea that they're all dreadful, do you really think that? Of course I don't. Of course I don't think that. But <laughs> I, I used to, I think it winds people up when they hear it. It winds men up. Um, you know, and 
I just think they need to be wound up a bit, really. I mean, we all know that most men are absolutely great and they wouldn't dream of in any way kind of treating women badly. But if you look back to the Victorian era, for example, they all went along with it, didn't they? They all went, oh, I'm ma- I've married someone now, so they're my property. Woohoo, get me. You know, you didn't get any men in those days going, is this really right that we own women once we've married them? That's the issue for me. So, of course, I don't hate them, but I think maleness... And male superiority or power or call it what you like is something that that needs shifting and that isn't kind of complained about enough or thought about enough. Well, it is much more these days, but thought about enough by men that could do something about it, really. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So it's no surprise, I guess, that you've picked The Female Eunuch by Jermaine Greer. Is <laughs> well. This, is this an example of another book that just confirmed what you'd secretly thought all along? Well, let, let's just say, I mean, if, if you think, for example, amongst the sort of feminist groups, certainly, you know, when I was a teenager and at university, which was 70s and 80s, there was this phrase going around, all men are rapists, right? Which I think is an interesting phrase. And of course, it doesn't literally mean every single man is. You know, how could it possibly mean that? What it means is that if you're a woman walking home on your own at night and someone, you can hear someone's footsteps behind you, for your own safety, you have to assume that that man is. That's what it means to me. And I think that's very sensible, you know. And we are at the stage now where we've been told to flag down a bus or, um, you know, hold your keys in your hands. I mean, I don't know if you've, have you ever poked anyone in the eye with any keys? I haven't. I'm not quite sure how that would work. I always make sure I've got my my fingers around the sharpest one, <laughs> just in case. I'm joking there again. But, you know, it, there's an element of truth to it. But I'm not talking in kind of literal reality. I'm talking in the overall, uh, you know, um, I don't know what the right word is really, but the overall reach of the male compared to the overall reach of the woman. And yes, everything's changed loads and it's moved on and things are much better. But in a lot of areas, they're not. They're worse, you know, um, domestic violence, rape convictions. You know, I I could get boring about this and people are probably going, oh my God, she's not going to go on that feminist rant now. But I think it's important as a woman that that women are taken seriously. And, we, you know, we've now got more and more reasons for men to say, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that because I thought she consented to me putting my hands around her neck or 
you know, hanging her off the edge of a cliff or whatever it might be. And I find that a dangerous kind of retrograde step, really. So Jamaica is, I don't agree with everything she said. She's an academic, which I admire because she knew what she was talking about. She doesn't give a toss what people think of her, which I also admire because I think as women, women are much more easily and quickly put down once they have something to say. I mean, I've been at the receiving end of it for a long time and, um, you know, I, I admired her kind of pushing forward and going, I'm going to say these outrageous things and I don't care what you think. And who knows if she really does care what they think. Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. But from my point of view, I, I admired that because you didn't see it very often in the 70s. So what were the things that, that you didn't agree with? Well, I just thought, um, you kind of might not believe this if I say this now, but that some of the edges um, were kind of very harsh, really, maybe. And, I mean, I kind of agreed with her with, with the sort of advice that she gave about women becoming more independent and that sort of thing. Uh, but I also thought kind of at, at times she sort of verges on, like, quite abusive, you, you know, and quite not exactly simplistic, but... Um, I think we should be working towards, I know I'm not demonstrating that at all in this chat that we're having, but we should be walking, working towards kind of being, talking to each other, being a bit more conciliatory about it and saying to men, you know, come on, have you, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Rather than going, they're all, they're all awful and, you know, let's have them <laughs> I all killed. I can't believe you're saying that. You've just said the complete opposite. I think you're having a dialogue with yourself on this because in <laughs> many ways, you. I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that struck me about Germaine Greer uh, is that, you know, I very much agree with all the theory, the academic theory of it, uh, which I think is partly what, what you're saying. But I was never really convinced that she really liked women. And 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 that was for me part of the problem with that wave of feminism was that I think partly because it, it was very very difficult for women then because they still didn't have the ability to go out and get a job and and and, and have agency over their own lives and all of those things. So at the same time as they were trying to break free, we were trying to they were trying to break free and 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 take charge of 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 their destinies. They also were still reliant on men. You know that was a time when you know you you had to live on your husband's pension or you know of if your course. husband divorced you, you didn't get the pension. And, you know, all of those things. So so I always felt that they were kind of warring with each other and competing with each other for men, whilst at the same time espousing what was a very sensible philosophy about how women needed to go forward. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I agree with you. And I know I just I've I, I've got I don't know if it's an adolescent thing or, or what it is. I do. I do like to kind of throw the cat in amongst the pigeons sometimes just for the hell of it you know I mean I get quite a lot of guys saying to me oh god what does your husband think of the way you talk about him well he doesn't think anything about it because it's comedy you know um if I really really did hate my husband and and all those things are all completely true would would we still be married to each other I very much doubt it but then again, you know, on the other hand, I am, you know, I, I'm a bit combative. And I think when you look at the work people produce, like Jermaine Greer, for example, 
you cannot avoid, and obviously this makes it very complicated. I know nothing about her early life, but I'm everyone's early life, as we know, is hugely important in the way that they develop as a person. My early life, for example, my dad suffered from depression and he was not a nice person and he was a violent person. And I'm, you know, I'm sure if I really looked at it, a, a lot of what I say is I'm saying that about my dad, you know, and unfortunately there's a lot of people around like my dad, not people that are depressed particularly, but people that are violent and that are very intolerant and have a very short fuse and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it's a bit complicated in some ways because that's obviously very much part of me and why I why I talk like I talk and why I do what I do. I'm just I'm just kind of getting out a load of resentment. I know it's too much for people, but my thing always was comedy first. It doesn't really matter if you say outrageous things as long as they're funny and they're not against the law, you know. Um, doesn't always work, though. It's really interesting what you just said because it is uh, that that quest, in a way, to find light out of the darkness, to be able to make comedy, for example, out of clearly what were upsetting times for you as a as a young person. And I, one of your book choices here by Primo Levi would very much, I think, live up to that very difficult challenge as well you know in in moments of reprieve that you know the thing that sets those Primo Levi books apart for me is that he's always looking for the good bits of humanity that glow out of out of the real morass isn't he he absolutely is and so am I and so are a lot of us I think you know I mean the holocaust was one of the worst um displays of brutal humanity if not the worst you know that most of us are nearest to in time and um, I think a lot of people would think nothing good could ever have have come out of that and moments of reprieve are about tiny little actions or acts of kindness by people that he, he came across in the hellhole that was Auschwitz, you know. And at times I do have a very negative view of humanity. If you look around the world now, why wouldn't you have? But then again, on the other hand, we do know that there are so many decent, good people around. But for him to find anything positive in his experience, you know, must have been virtually impossible. And, you know, some of the tiny little stories he he picked out are so kind of delicate and so small, but they are like a little pinprick of light, which kind of enabled me to sort of read about all the horror that he experienced. And just knowing that, you know, it's it's interesting because my, my little brother was married to a German woman and her dad was um, a German soldier in the Second World War. And you couldn't have met a lovelier guy. But, you know, at a certain time in this country, if you'd said to someone, this is, this is a German soldier, Lord knows what they might have done, you know, because first of all, everyone thought uh, German soldiers were all Nazis, which they certainly weren't. And, and, and monsters as well, because of because of the way that um, that they sort of behaved. But it, I don't know, it kind of gave me an insight into, it's too simple to go, well, we were just obeying orders, you know. Um, 
but there was a lot of misinformation, uh, propaganda, the sorts of thing that happen in wars. And he was a delightful guy, you know, absolutely charming, lovely sense of humour and very warm. And, um, you know, this book has a bit of the flavour of him to it, really, was, was that there was some humanity there towards people. Not very much, I grant you, because it was the most appalling, appalling crime. Um, Give me a sense of the of the stories in this book that, that moved you, that, that, that Primo Levi was sort of bringing to the light. Well, I think there's one he describes where he, he writes a letter to his mother and... Um, He's he's caught doing that and whoever catches him uh, takes the letter away and says that they're going to process it and, um, you know, check whether there's anything subversive in it. Well, obviously, they're not meant to be sending letters at all because the letters are saying what's actually really happening with them, you know, um, in that place. Um, and then brings it back to him, having read it and obviously been emotionally affected by it and just gives it back to him and says, that's all right, that's fine, that letter. And he ends up not getting any punishment for it either. And you might think, oh, well, you know, that guy found a letter and just gave it back to him after he'd read it. What's the big deal there? Well, the big deal there is that 99 out of 100 people in his position would, would have got him punished it's little tiny things like that. And um, I think one day, you know, because the Germans didn't obviously run these places on their own. They had like local boys working for them. And I think on one occasion he helps this boy out and the boy gives him a radish. Well, who would see that as an enormous act of humanity? But for someone who's drinking, you know, like a half a cup full of slop every day and that's it. It was a really big deal, you know. So to kind of little things like that, I suppose, that just make you not totally give up hope, I suppose. Do you think, um, you know, you talked about your dad being depressed and, and, and you worked as a psychiatric nurse, so you'll have more experience of, of depression and men mental illness than most. Do you think that ex being exposed to... to the magnitude of, of, of a crime like the Holocaust and, and the experiences, the intimate experiences of someone who lived through it. Do you think that that helps us to elevate ourselves from the times that we're feeling bad? You know, I mean, people talk about depression as an illness, which it absolutely is, but at its, at its more benign base level, do you think there is a sense that, that perhaps we need to remind ourselves how much worse things could be and that books like this actually make you feel better. Yeah, I absolutely do. I, I do, really. But it's very hard, isn't it, to convince people about how, some, how bad something was when they haven't experienced it, you know. It always makes me laugh when I'm here, here quizzes and, and, you know, there's a question that was asked of someone on some quiz I was listening to, you know, what happened in, like, 1945 after la, la, la. And, and this person actually said, oh, I don't know, I wasn't born then. Well, you know, <laughs> you don't only have to know stuff that happened after you were born. You know, you can read books about it. And I suppose I kind of do think, oh, God, I'm so going to sound like an old person now. But I do think... We are. We are we're not that old. Well, you're not. How old are you? 
I'm going to be 60 in November. Oh, that's not true. It can't possibly be. <laughs> it is I always true. think of you of 30, as 35 or something. So I always think of myself as 35, which is why it's so shocking when you're not. You I know. Of, you know. Every now and again, you have a sort of wake-up moment where you go, oh, ooh, not 35 anymore then. <laughs> Yikes. I know. <laughs> it's, it's weirdly horrible, isn't it? Yeah, so I've see, now I've forgotten because I am old. What no, was... you were going to say, you're going to sound like an old person. We were talking about the importance of kind of being interested and connected to things that might have happened before you were born. Yeah, I, I think that is important. But I think, you know, attention spans are getting shorter. And I, I kind of wonder what's going to happen when someone can't watch a kind of 20-second TikTok clip anymore because they get bored with it too quickly. And I know, you know, a lot of people don't really read books anymore, uh, like kind of younger people. It's not fair to say all of them because I know that's not true. But I, I find it's very much the era of comedy at the moment that people talk about themselves and some sort of trauma that they've had in their life. And I think, you know, comedy kind of goes in a fashion, really. Comedy before I started was kind of one-liners and a man goes into a pub and it was all very male and blah, 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 blah. Then it sort of morphed into kind of what they call alternative comedy, which is about politics and Thatcher and that sort of thing. Then it went into kind of yuppie comedy for a bit, you know, loads of money and all that. And I think these days it's all about personal experience more than anything else and I just think that's a it's not a bad thing in some ways that we're moving in that direction you know because the BBC at its height was like virtually devoid of emotion in many ways when it was delivering uh, news and that and we do need to have kind of more emotion in our lives I don't know it seems to be heading in in a direction I don't really know where it's going to end up it'll be very interesting I'm looking forward to it but what you're saying, uh, I think, is that comedy actually has the ability to reflect the sort of zeitgeist of any particular moment in history, you know. And I agree, right yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know, agree. I know I just said that. I'm not saying I agree with myself, but I agree with how you're putting it. <laughs> that name, and that, thank you very much for that, <laughs> that approval there, very important. Um, but but, but, but do, that does then beg the question, which is what we were talking about in terms of being exposed, you know, I think that what we're both skirting around is the idea that there's an awful lot of navel-gazing now and there's an awful lot of delving into personal trauma and terrible childhood experiences. And, I mean, I could bore you rigid with bad childhood experiences from my life, but why would I want to do that? Because, actually, what I want to do is kind of rise above them and get on with my life. And I think that is perhaps a sentiment that's slightly lacking uh, at the moment. And that leads to a sort of degree of maybe lack of resilience in people. And so reading a book like Moments of Reprieve is a reminder, maybe, of the importance of contextualising our woes. Yeah, I, 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 and I totally agree with your picture of, of how things are kind of going. I think um, the problem with, you know, I have a big problem with the word resilience, right, because I, I think it gets parroted a lot in kind of therapeutic circles but actually, what, what does it really mean, you know? And I, I don't think, I think it's kind of lost its meaning because it gets parroted so much in 
therapeutic settings and what, like it, journey it, it, oh my god yeah all that sort of stuff does that drive you nuts it does me absolutely bonkers and passionate and then i find, you know i'm passionate yeah. about drains i'm passionate about sparrows uh, you know scaffolding I, I am passionate about scaffolding though <laughs> no but i don't yeah i, I don't know it's all I, I what is it where did it come from it's it's weird and you can't just keep parroting phrases because they absolutely lose their meaning in the end you know particularly I think like you said journey and and also resilience you you don't need another word for you know for whatever it used to be called you just need to teach it to people or and and I think in the middle there's there's good middle ground somewhere and before we used to be too stiff upper lip but now we're too you know vomity emotionally in a way dysfunctional family that's another one who hasn't had a dysfunctional family yes I don't know one person that's had a functional family never met one oh, they wouldn't be my friend if they had a functional family <laughs> definitely <Mine. laughs> let's move on to reportage when I was um, a kid well in my, in my teens all I wanted to be was a a foreign correspondent. So I'm fascinated that you picked the, the Faber book of reportage curated by the very esteemed Professor John Carey. Uh, why on earth this book? It's a, it is a bit of a surprise. All of the others make sense to me coming from you, but this one was a bit of a sort of left field choice, it felt like. Oh, really? That's interesting, because actually I think out of these books, it's probably my favourite one. And um, <laughs> What it really is, is it's a series of eyewitness accounts of events in history. I remember being on a Radio 4 programme once with this very snooty intellectual who just dismissed it and said, you know, it's not an important historical uh, book in any way because, you know, we can't rely on these accounts of, of history of people who witnessed kind of these events because we don't really know who wrote them and we don't really know, you know. Um, but to me, uh, it's they're as near as damn it, you know. And so I think one thing we definitely don't do is we definitely don't learn from history. We certainly don't seem to. And I also think um, it's a really interesting way to learn history because he's put this book together and it's kind of for everyone. So you've got eyewitness accounts of like military campaigns, if that's your thing. It's not really my thing. But you've also got like the most fascinating little little vignettes. Um, just for example, there's a description by the writer Fanny Burney of having a mastectomy in Paris in the 17th, 18th century uh, without an anaesthetic. And there's also an absolutely really sad and but brilliant interview with a 23-year-old woman who's worked in a, a mill setting since she was six and uh, talks about what the conditions are like. And she works from her hours of five in the morning until 11 at night. And this was like from the age of 11 or something. And... What, what that teaches me and why in a way I would live my life by it is if you look back into history and see where we as humans, as women, as children, how we all were in different historical settings, you realise that, you know, we, we have come to a, to a better place. We've got an NHS struggling as it is. We've got 
benefits of people that don't work. You know, we 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 are moving in the right direction. It all goes wrong quite a lot, obviously, because things do. But it's just, I always think, you know, messages come through to me from history about, all right, I mean, I'm in a lovely position myself, but, you know, even people that aren't, it could be so much worse. And it was so much worse, particularly for women, for like hundreds and thousands of years, you know. I, I just find it fascinating. Sorry. That, no, I was just going to say that that's such a case in point, though. You, you mentioned even, you know, the, the, the stories of women and, and the thing about this idea that, you know, who are these people giving us this history? We don't know who they are, so they, therefore it's not credible. But actually, you know, over the centuries, history has been told it's a male narrative, 19% of the time. Women haven't figured, uh, you know, nearly enough in it and certainly nowhere near equally. And so in many ways, the way of, of getting history that tells you exactly as you're saying what really went on, this is a much more honest way of, of achieving that. It's kind of history without a filter, isn't it? Which, which we rely on for all of women's stories out of history pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I was always in, interested in history from the point of view of the way it was, it's taught, you know. You know, if you look at the way that Cromwell was taught, for example, in England, Cromwell was a great hero, you know, who, who you know, went into, into foreign lands, went to, over to Ireland and, and he subdued those people, but that's kind of what they needed. But if you look at it from another point of view, it, it's totally the opposite. So it depends where you learnt it, you know. It's very movable history and, and very opinion-based um, uh, as well, isn't it, like you say. And, you know, over the years, it's been taught by very educated, mainly men, and written by them as well, most of it. And so, as you say, I, I would far rather rely on the kind of interview with some poor 20-year-old who's completely deformed by her job in a mill, which was, was actually done in an interview by, I think, a local newspaper did it or something, um, than, th th than what some... I mean, I know it's a professor that's put it mm. together, but that what some acad than, than, than look at the work of sort of academics over the years who whose experience only touches a very small... Um, number of his peers in many ways so it's absolutely fascinating the other reason I like it is short attention span you can read a half a page thing about Charles Dickens witnessing a public hanging or you know or you can you can read um, 15 pages about a military campaign in Italy or something so it's kind of you can dip into it and you, you kind of really get something out of it. And I, and I certainly kind of use a lot of examples from it, um, you know, and think about it a lot. And I, and I think history should kind of be more like that, really, because people, kids are bored by history because it's taught in a certain way. Uh, horrible histories change that quite a bit and obviously focused on all the gore, which kids love. But, you know, it, it's taught them something, so that's good. When you when you think about you know the way women you know have been written out of history so much, how do you feel uh, when someone like Joan of Arc you know I, I think there's a a play just about to go on. I'm not sure if it's at the National, but it's definitely at a big theatre uh, where they've made Joan Isn't of it Arc at the Globe. Joan, 
Is it at the Globe? Yeah. yeah. And they're making Joan of Arc gender neutral. And I really felt very conflicted about that idea because it's like there aren't nearly enough female heroines out there for us to grasp hold of as role models or as fascinating characters in history. And then, you know, to have one of them neutralised in a way seems, seems, yeah, difficult. Yeah, what do I find? I, I mean, I, yes, I do. I agree with you to a certain extent, but I think, and it, like with drama, you know, I used to get pissed off when they did Shakespeare in modern dress, for example, because <laughs> I like people to have long beards and <laughs> um, in robes, because I, you know, because that's what it was like when I was a kid, sort of, you get used to something, don't you? So I suppose. You, you have to see theatre productions, which I didn't for a long time because I never even thought about it, but they're one person's vision, aren't they? And, and you don't have to accept that vision, and, uh, but, it, you know, you might find it interesting all, all the same. I don't know. But, yeah, I know, I mean, I know what you're saying. There are so few women available to us in history. I mean, if, you, if, if people said to you, could, how many sort of women who aren't queens could you name before the 12th century, I could probably only come up with Boadicea, maybe Eve <laughs> and Calpurnia. <laughs> Cleopatra, let's throw and her Cleopatra. in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, but, Helen of Troy. But they were, they were sort of queens-ish, weren't yeah. they? They were kind yeah. of royals, you know. The royals always got a mensch, even if they were women. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I do know what you mean. It is odd, yeah. Well, look, you talked about short attention span. I'm sure that's not the only reason that you've picked Staying Alive, an anthology of poetry uh, chosen by Neil Ashley. And I actually love the theme of this uh, collection. Talk me through it. Well, what I like about Staying Alive is, first of all, I think most people were, again, bored by poetry at school. And, you know, I have a friend who, who said to me a few years ago, I hate poetry. And I said, well, my mission is... To, to change your mind on that because actually you know poetry is not one amorphous blob it is so varied and so at one end of the spectrum you've got someone like you know I'm showing my age here but John Cooper Clark or John Hegley um loved uh, loved John well I love both of them actually like just funny and and very very straightforward every line you can understand what it's referring to and then you've got poets going back centuries and centuries who you look at it and think, oh, what on earth are they on about sort of thing? And when you were at school, you got someone else's interpretation of what that all meant. And I think what this book does is it's got such a kind of varied array of different types of poetry in it, not only from all over the world, but uh, by men and women. There's a lot of women poets in there, which is great for a change. You know, so don't get that very often. Poets from India, from the States, you know, from absolutely all over. And I think with a book like that, it's the sort of book, it's a bit like reportage, that you can sit down for five minutes. What I used to do, because I wanted to like poetry when I was younger, but I didn't really know how to. Um, and I would just start off by reading short ones, because I felt that big, long poems were a bit too overwhelming. And there's lots of short poems in there. There's lots of funny ones. There's, and they're grouped into different uh, categories, which sort of, you know, concern different areas of your life. So there's, there's one, one about death and dying, you know. And 
I think the mistake a lot of people make with poetry, and I, I've done this myself, is you try and find poems that totally and utterly 100% reflect your own experience. And that's never going to happen because it's someone else's, you know. And so either you go with and be interested in what their interpretation of a death is, or you're just not going to ever be interested in poetry until you write some your, yourself, you know. And I think we can all get something out of it. You can do the concrete thing of going online and looking them up and going, oh, yes, that's right, they were in prison for 20 years and they, they you know, had 15 different wives or whatever it is, so that's why they're writing that. But I think you just have to look at the, la at the language of poetry because nothing sums up human experience to me better than a brilliant line in a poem, quite honestly. You're not going to like everything and just accept that. If you don't like a poem, stop reading it and read another one. Flat books, really. Do you think it's also OK? Because I think I think uh, people are intimidated by poetry uh, sometimes. I know I am. You know, I'll read a, a poem that someone recommends and I'll think, I think I really don't understand it. I don't know what the key to this is. I don't know how to enter it. And and actually just exposing yourself and not being afraid of it is is really important. It absolutely is. If I could just very quickly recommend another book, which again curated <laughs> by Professor John Carey, who obviously I'm madly in love with in some way. Um, and what he does, this is a book of poetry starting from kind of um, Roman and Greek poetry, where he takes, there's about 20 poems in the book. He discusses the historical background and what the poem's about, and then you read it. And it's so fascinating, you know. And that you can do that with poems if you want to, or if you want to just have an emotional reaction to them and you don't like that, um, kind of move on. But there's lots of different ways of doing it, you know. And um, I would maybe ha have a look at that book as well, just to see. I think a lot of poems, um, especially the longer ago they were written, are really hard to understand. And you do almost need a footnote for every single line and what it means. Um, but more modern poetry, you know, I mean, there's, like, there's a brilliant poem um, in, in this book and it's written by a, a, a father whose daughter is anorexic and it, it's it's so affecting um, because, you know, if you know people who've, who've had anorexia, you just understand every line and, and that's what I think it can do, do for you. If you can kind of tap into what someone's trying to say, really. And because it's divided into different areas, this book, you know, you, you might want to sort of explore an area that you're more familiar with if you know someone that's just had a baby or whatever it might be. But just have a go at it. And if you don't understand it, look it up online. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, last question then. Where do you stand? Uh, because I draw the line at funny verse. It really irritates me. Um, you're a comedian. Do you find it funny? Not particularly. I don't really like limericks unless they've got really awful swear words in them because I'm <laughs> such an adolescent about rude words and things. No, I think that comical kind of, you know, ha, ha. Well, I, I, I know like Stephen Fry will come around to my house and kill me if I say I don't like P.G. Woodhouse, but I don't because I just don't understand it. It's that, it's, it's something I don't recognise at all and I can't understand why it's so great and that's what funny poetry is like because it's all written in a kind of such a weird style but then again do you know uh, John Cooper Clark's poem Chicken Town that's hilarious 
it's meant to be funny and it is funny. So there is some poetry that's funny, but it's just got to be delivered to you by a poet that you like, not someone posh that went to Eton in 1850, whose life you have absolutely nothing in common with, possibly. There you go. Joe Brand telling it as it is, as she always does. Joe, it was really fantastic to talk to you about your books, your, your your books to live by. And I love the fact that you took it so seriously. Where do you read your books? And would you take any of these, for example, to bed with you? Oh, yeah, all of them. All of them. <laughs> I mean, I think a couple of them are sort of you could describe them as toilet books if if you're the sort of person that stays in a long time and we know quite a few people do Men. Uh, <laughs> so you can kind of because they're they've got short pieces in them you can dip into them but I yeah I like reading in bed in fact that's my favorite really but I'm, I'm a terrible I'll occasionally read in bed I know this is an awful thing to do and I'll have 24-hour news on with the sound turned down and subtitles so I can just look up and yeah, that's awful, isn't it? I, I do stuff like that. I know I shouldn't. Well, thank you so much for sharing your books to live by. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it too. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. Come back every week. My guests over the next couple of months will include Juliet Stevenson, George the Poet, Frank Cottrell Boyce, and many more. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Times Radio app. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.